Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. We are so glad you're here for the Three Martini Lunch. This has been the craziest and in many ways one of the worst years we can remember. And so we're almost done with the year and your reward is our year-end awards, six installments of the uh, Crystal uh, Three Martini Lunch glasses. Some are good, some are bad, some are crazy, Uh, but in six different installments, we're going to look back at this just amazing year in so many different ways, but in our traditional McLaughlin Group type categories. So you can imagine us sitting around in that kind of half circle that McLaughlin used to have, and I guess there still is a McLaughlin Group, but uh, uh, handing out our prestigious awards in all sorts of different categories, and it'll all culminate on New Year's Eve with our Person of the Year, Turncoat of the Year, and Fearless Predictions for 2021. So... Jim, let's dive right in. Our three categories this year. Oh, I should probably mention the fact that we're brought to you today by Theragun. uh, theragun Theragun.com slash martini. We'll talk about them a little bit more in just a moment. But Jim, our categories today are overrated, underrated, and honest political figures. Who is the most overrated? Who is the most underrated? And who is the most honest? So let's start with the one uh, who's most overrated. Jim, who's at the top of your list? Greg, this was a heck of a strong year for overrated political figures. <laughs> it's the bad categories that always seem to come easier, and you gotta you gotta pick out of a, a teeming crowd of them. But out of so many options, I have selected Jamie Harrison, the Democratic Senate candidate in South Carolina. Harrison raised and spent more than a hundred and thirty million dollars, exceeding the previous record held by Beto O'Rourke, which you will notice another man you will notice did not win in a southern state against a Republican senator that most Democratic grassroots hate it from coast to coast hate it. However, there's an important factor if you want to actually win a Senate race, and that's that you have to be popular in that state, not popular with out-of-state donors. Harrison had more money than God and basically spent it as much as he could, flood the airwaves with ads. You know, all throughout, you know, uh, my parents lived down there and they were saying just about every commercial break had a Jamie Harrison ad. Um, and worth noting, three times Quinnipiac said, had polling said this race was, was tied. On election day, Lindsey Graham won by 10 points. It wasn't that close. It wasn't even, you know, bet much better. That was about what Obama did in South Carolina back in 2008. Uh, for, for being the umpteenth edition of the great Southern Democratic hope, Jamie Harrison, you are the most overrated political figure of 2020. Excellent choice. Yeah, there were a lot of people who thought that Lindsey Graham was going down. Uh, his more and more friendly attitude towards uh, President Trump, particularly after the passing of Senator McCain, led a lot of people to think he was vulnerable. And once that conventional wisdom, which is so often not right, got out, uh, you're right, the money poured into Jamie Harrison, the polls had it neck and neck. And uh, as you watch the votes come in on election night, you're just thinking, is this ever going to tighten up? And no, it just never really did. And a double-digit win for Lindsey Graham. Uh, to think about uh, the other races the Democrats could have spent that money on was just delicious. Uh, much closer races, particularly at the House level. But hey, uh, the Democrats never seem to learn this lesson, and I'm perfectly happy for them to never learn this lesson. They pretty much pulled off the same thing in Kentucky, too, and got slaughtered with uh, Amy McGrath. Uh, thought very hard about putting Mike Bloomberg in this one, uh, mm. blowing a billion dollars. my backup, too. <laughs> Mike can't get it done. <laughs> That's right. I mean, this is a guy that um, 
a lot of people thought after Biden floundered in the first uh, couple of uh, contests, Iowa, New Hampshire, that he was going to be the guy to pick up the mantle for the not crazy wing of the Democratic Party, which is uh, debatable in and of itself. But then uh, he did not do well in the debates. Uh, and by the time he was actually on the ballot somewhere, uh, the party had coalesced around Biden. So he blew a billion of his own money. And then he pumped a ton of money into Florida and Texas, couldn't flip a state house, couldn't help Biden win either of those states. And so, uh, I mean, he's he's wasted more money than the federal government this year. Well, maybe not that much, but uh, uh, for any private citizen, I, I'd be hard pressed to find another one who blew more money than him. But no, my uh, official winner this year is New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. This is a guy who is just an obnoxious narcissist all the way around. Uh, he got uh, just fawning, drooling review from the media for his briefings on coronavirus. He fell in love with his own press clippings. I'm sure he was already in love with himself, but uh, he decided that he was this uh, massive success story, even though New York recorded the most cases and by far the most deaths, and uh, that's still the case all these months later. Uh, the guy ended up creating a poster that he sold talking about getting over the mountain with COVID. He wrote a book about how he was so successful, and then ultimately, uh, you know, New York's getting hit again, and he's got to close everything down again. Uh, he's been obnoxious with the media. Uh, he did those disgusting uh, segments with his brother where they never talked about anything consequential. He, of course, now denies that he uh, signed the order that required uh, COVID-positive patients back into nursing homes, uh, even while they were still uh, able to transmit the virus. And that same order forbid the nursing homes and other assisted living centers from even testing those people after they came back. And uh, based on, on various counts, uh, at least six to 7,000 and possibly north of 10,000 uh, people died, potentially many of them due to that order and his very slow response and eventually rescinding it. Andrew Cuomo does not have anything close to a uh, impressive record on coronavirus or anything else this year, yet the media just continues to pump him up, basically designed as a contrast against President Trump and because they decided the lockdown states were more responsible than the uh, non-lockdown states. States, and so they were comparing him very favorably to the likes of Ron DeSantis down in Florida, who has a much better record on this issue uh, than Cuomo. So uh, of all the fawning, of all the uh, delirious media coverage, the facts speak louder. And Andrew Cuomo is my easy choice for this award. I was going to say, when you started with the Bloomberg description, I was like, who's going to top that? that? That's, you know, but yeah, Cuomo's up there. In terms of hyped performance, you are correct that Cuomo has the worst ratio of anybody in, in politics 2020. That's amazing. Amazing. But, you know, uh, if that stresses you out hearing, you know, Andrew Cuomo, the guy got a stinking Emmy. The guy won an Emmy for his coronavirus <laughs> response, for, for heaven's sake. I mean, talk about the media just being totally in the tank. If this is stressing you out, your muscles are tensing up, get the Theragun. Uh, it's definitely the way to go here. And it's not just Andrew Cuomo coverage. I mean, the stress of daily life weighs on all of us. So whether you're an elite athlete uh, or a regular person just trying to get through the day and get through the, the nonsense the media feeds you, muscle pain and muscle tension is a real thing. Uh, we use the Theragun, my wife and I. Uh, it's great. It has a lot of different routines. You just plug in uh, which routines you want in your app. It could be for a specific muscle group, or you could spend a couple minutes on a, on a variety of muscle groups for your back, for your neck, for your legs, for your feet. Uh, fantastic stuff. It eases away all the tension. And Jim, this has been a, a pretty tense year. So uh, that's that's why we use the Theragun. Mm. You know, you should use Theragun, the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combination of depth, speed, and power. 
and now it's as quiet as an electric toothbrush. That's because the all-new Gen 4 Theragun has a proprietary brushless motor that is so quiet you will wonder if it's on while you soothe your aching muscles with Theragun's signature power, amplitude, and effectiveness. So try the Theragun for 30 days. There's no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4, which has an OLED screen, personalized Theragun app, and the quiet and power you need. It starts at just $199, so go to theragun.com martini right now and get that Gen 4 Theragun today. That's theragun.com martini, theragun.com martini. All right, Jim. Uh, again, a very busy year in politics. Election years always are. And then you throw in a pandemic and there's all sorts of options for many of these awards. We just got through our choices for most overrated political figures of the year. So let's give credit where credit has not been given uh, in, in many cases this year. Who is your most underrated political figure? You know, there, this was another one where one name just jumped out at me pretty quickly. Uh, and I went with Maine Senator Susan Collins. Um, this was a, a case where heading into this cycle, uh, I had looked back to, it was 2008 where Obama was winning her state by a wide margin over, uh, John McCain. And yet she won reelection to the Senate pretty handily. And I kind of been joking that every six years, Democrats are convinced they're going to knock off Susan Collins and, you know, the, they get thumped every six years. And, you know, I was fairly optimistic. But then week after week, month after month, the polls showed Sarah Gideon, the Democratic challenger, way ahead of Collins and not even all looking all that close. And I believe no poll actually showed Collins ever ahead. Um, I mentioned in the previous martini the difference in spending. Collins campaign spent about 30 million. Gideon's campaign spent 60 million. And in the end, Gideon lost by about eight percentage points. That's about 70,000 votes up in Maine. And this is a state where Biden beat Trump by about 74,000. So I think one of the things, there's a fascinating profile of the race written after the results were in, in an independent newspaper called The Mainer. And the portrait of the, uh, the Gideon campaign and what it did wrong is kind of a fascinating contrast to what the Collins campaign did right. Um, that basically this was enormously negative campaigning, uh, ugliest and most expensive Senate race in Maine's history. You know, Gideon was technically running as limiting the, she kept saying she was pledging to limit the influence of big money in politics. And then she spent $60 million, mostly on negative advertising. Um, and there are a couple people who point out that like the, just the sheer ridiculousness and the tone of it, you know, look, this is all going on during a pandemic. Maine's getting hit like anybody else. And I guess the other thing that really drove a whole bunch of uh, independent Mainers crazy is that the Gideon campaign kept asking for money, even though they were getting this huge influx of donations from across the country. Uh, and what, what somebody observed, which was a perfect example of this, is that on the afternoon and evening of Election Day, the Gideon campaign sent out several emails, each one urging supporters to rush one final contribution right now to help keep our digital ads on the air until the polls close. And then they found out that the campaign ended the campaign with $15 million in the bank. You know, here's like, you know, Susan Collins is not always my favorite senator. Uh, she did not vote for Amy Coney Barrett. And I was not not pleased, not happy. But you know what? She voted for Kavanaugh. And in each one of those cases, she explained why she thought what she thought, her reasoning, her logic, her uh, the evidence she found compelling. And I think a lot of people in Maine trust her that it's one of those things where they know they're not always going to agree with her. She's always probably going to be probably the most liberal senator, liberal Republican senator in the Senate. But she's always going to make her best judgment. She's always going to you know, put her constituents first. And some days that's going to make conservatives happy. And some days it's not. Uh, it, you know, Susan Collins makes us a lot happier than Sarah Gideon would. 
and most other Democrat senators would. So um, I, I kept once she won and I realized my, my original gut instinct was right and all these polls had been completely wrong. Uh, I just like to envision Susan Collins sitting atop a metaphorical throne of skulls of all of her enemies and all of her opponents who tried it because she's such a nice lady and she would never want it. It would be a very classy, understated throne of skulls, you know, very, very New England Cape Cod, uh, uh, you know, sitting chair or something like that, just made out of the bones of her enemies. And that's just, you know, that's the kind of happy thoughts we have to keep go- keep us going in 2020, Greg. <laughs> Susan Collins was definitely my first choice as well. I think she was the biggest pleasant surprise on election night uh, in, in some of the top tier races. Because, yeah, I mean, the polls were not even showing her within the margin of error. And then um, we were also concerned about the ranked choice system in Maine, because uh, if a lot of people who didn't make her their first choice, put her as their bottom choice, even if she was the top vote getter, but didn't get to 50%, uh, there might still be a way for her uh, to end up losing. And then Sarah Gideon, who's a total radical, would end up in that seat. Uh, and she just never dropped below 50%. Uh, she, she, she made the ranked choice system obsolete in that particular race. And uh, she ended up surprising a lot of people, most especially the pollsters. The pollsters got a ton of stuff wrong this year. I don't think any race uh, they got more wrong than that one. So uh, congratulations to Susan Collins. So, Jim, my backup choice is probably going to surprise you. Uh, it's not one that a lot of people are, gonna, are going to think. Um, but I'm going to go with President Trump on this because there was a lot of people throughout the year, deciding that uh, President Trump had just shot himself in the foot too many times with the tweets, with the with the outbursts, and, and, and so many things. As usual, Nate Silver and the gang had him uh, highly unlikely to win, much as they did four years earlier, and he didn't end up winning. But I mean, we had national pollsters, and again, this might be more of an indictment of the pollsters than anything else, I had Trump down you know, double digits, uh, 17 points in Wisconsin, 12 to 15 points in Michigan, losing in Florida, losing elsewhere. So maybe it's more an indictment on them, and we can find another year-end martini for them. But uh, just as in 2016, there's an element of the population that the pollsters just couldn't get, except for Robert Cahaley over at Trafalgar. And so this was a surprise, I think, to a lot of people how close it became on election night. And on election night, for several hours there, it looked like President Trump uh, had a very good chance of actually winning re-election, which would have shocked a lot of people. So uh, underrated and understated is usually somebody who doesn't get a lot of attention. But that's certainly not how Trump fits into this category for me. But he's a guy that a lot of people just kind of thought, you know, he's he's locked in at a certain level of support in these polls. He's not going to get to where he needs to go. And ultimately, he didn't. But he got a whole lot closer than most people expected. And so he was able uh, to tap into something that uh, others just can't see. It wasn't enough this time, but uh, it's worth mentioning. Yeah, Greg, that's not a crazy choice. I think one of the things that comes to mind as you're, you're going through that is that Donald Trump, allegedly racist, allegedly sexist, allegedly xenophobic, at least according to the exit polls, improved his standing with every single demographic in the American electorate, except straight white men. Kind of of fascinating. His appeal to minorities of every stripe was definitely underestimated heading into this year. Absolutely right. He appealed to uh, the, especially the Cuban Latino community, but it, it appears to be a- across the board in the Latino community. Uh, his argument, I think, for law and order uh, helped uh, among a lot of minorities. His, the First Step Act obviously did. His attacking of Biden's uh, crime bill probably helped in that department. Uh, and so he made uh, inroads that uh, we'll see if other Republicans can make and we'll see what 2024 looks like. But uh, a lot of surprises within uh, what we saw in the electorate in, uh, in 2020. 
Hi, I'm Sarah Carter, host of the Sarah Carter Podcast. Everywhere you look these days, we're seeing an aggressive effort to destroy what made America great, tearing down our history, attacking our freedoms, and canceling any person who dares to cross the progressive speech police. We cannot stand by and let this happen. It's time for the silent majority to become the unsilent majority. Join me on the Sarah Carter Podcast. Subscribe at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Jim, on to most honest. I always joke every year that this is the one with the fewest nominees. So uh, who'd you come up with this year? Yeah, I I did not have a hard time with this, although I think it was the qualities of this figure became crystallized in their clarity uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Attorney General William Barr, who has been painted as a partisan hatchet man and and the president's henchmen and and all kinds of stuff for most of his time as attorney general. president spent a lot of time after the election insisting that the election had been uh, stolen or that there were significant amounts of electoral fraud. Uh, and then Barr, you know, instructed U.S. attorneys to look into this and that he was going to put no restrictions on their ability to dig into this. But after several weeks, he said he had seen not seen sufficient evidence of voter fraud to indicate the revolts would or could be reversed. Uh, and then just a few weeks later, he added that uh, we learned that Hunter Biden, the son of the president-elect, is under investigation, possibly for tax stuff, possibly for money laundering, possibly for shady foreign connections. And this had begun apparently in spring. And this did not leak during the campaign, or at least not from the Justice Department. Obviously, there was the story of Rudy Giuliani finding the laptop store out in Delaware and, and all of that. But you know, none of it came from, from uh, William Barr. William Barr knew the president wanted to, you know, would want that information out there. William Barr knew the president wanted to hear, oh, yes, we see lots and lots of, of voter fraud. It definitely could be in the uh, realm of tens of thousands of votes and alter the outcome in Georgia and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Nevada and Arizona. He didn't do it. And that was a, you know, this, this, this one that takes courage. But secondly, that takes honesty. That takes a willingness to understand you have duties higher than your immediate one to the president. You have a duty to the law. You have a duty to procedure. You have a duty to the truth. Um, kudos, Attorney General Barr. You have been demonized for the past two years. I think in many cases unfairly. And I just hope people line up to apologize, although I'm not going to be holding my breath, Greg. No, no. My favorite uh, negative moniker for Attorney General Barr was Trump's hand-picked attorney general because, you know, (laughs) all the other attorneys general were never hand-picked. They just kind of popped up out of nowhere. The president never actually personally selected them. It's amazing. Obama and Bush and Clinton, they picked their attorney generals with their feet. But yes, yes. Oh, they, the left loved to demonize him. Remember the uh, there was the hearing where he wasn't even really allowed to answer the questions. The Democrats, I think it was on a House committee, just kept screaming at him the entire time. Mm-hmm. Very productive uh, hearing that yeah. was. Uh, Jim, I don't know if I've uh, had this uh, choice before for, for most honest, but as this person exits at least their current job, I'm going to go in that direction. I almost actually made it Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar, mm-hmm. but, but I'm not sure that... Uh, Honesty is the exactly the right word there. I think he just did his job better than everybody else. Hmm. There might be some pollsters out there that uh, kind of had a, a preconceived conclusion that they wanted, but I'm not sure why, because if you're a pollster, I think accuracy is probably the best way to stay in business. Uh, but kudos to Mr. Kahaley, because he saw things clearly that no one else did, even if his ultimate projections uh, were off by a point or two in some of the most critical states. Um, I'm going with Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, Tulsi Gabbard is leaving the House. I'm sure she would not have been able to win her Democratic primary uh, for the House this year. She was, of course, a presidential candidate. Uh, She beautifully 
kneecapped Kamala Harris, and unfortunately Harris is uh, back in the mix only because of the unrest this summer, I'm pretty sure. I don't think she would have been on Biden's list if there hadn't been uh, racial uh, chaos going on throughout the country. But nonetheless, uh, Tulsi Gabbard has not been afraid to speak out against her own party for a long time. And I think that's kind of the litmus test for honesty. Uh, Back during the Obama years, when Obama refused to uh, call it the Islamic State or call it Islamic terrorism, you know, it was, you know, man-made disasters or whatever euphemisms they came up with. She was very upset uh, that they wouldn't call it what it was, uh, being a veteran of the Iraq war and so forth. She wanted uh, clarity on that. Uh, She has uh, taken a more libertarian streak on U.S. military involvement, which is uh, not necessarily always well-received in her party. She's a far lefty on domestic issues. I don't think for the most part you're going to find a ton of agreement on those issues with her, but she's at least nuanced enough on some of them uh, to make her party livid. Just look what she's done here at the end of the year with two pieces of legislation. She wants to ban abortions after 24 weeks, which is, you know, viability. Uh, And of course, she's uh, being uh, harangued out of town by the left. And she also believes, Jim, that only biological girls and women should participate in women's sports, which I know is a completely radical concept. But in the Democratic Party, it's enough to get you banished for life. So I wish she had been a little more vocal on some of these things while she still was on the ballot somewhere. She's not even 40 years old yet. I'm not sure where she'll end up uh, going forward here. But uh, always someone interesting to listen to, even if you didn't always end up at the same conclusion with her. She was not just this uh, cookie-cutter person on the national political stage. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, considering how there were a, a teeming... We started the year with what's felt like a teeming millions of Democratic candidates. It was only probably about 24, 25, 26. You could within it very quickly. You could figure out Tulsi Gabbard was going to stand out. Didn't get a ton of support, single digits most of the time, but she was interesting. It was not the same old blather, you know, the same old talking points, anything like that. She was not afraid to ruffle feathers. She was not afraid. You know, you only do that if you really believe these things. Nobody, no, no advisor, no strategist would ever look at the focus numbers and say, "You need to get into a big fight with." Um, uh, transsexuals and the idea that uh, transsexual men should not participate in women's sports. Um, all of her other stances, getting into a fight with Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, none, none of these, you only do these sorts of things if you genuinely believe it. And that's a trait in politics that we probably could use more of, Greg. No, absolutely right. So here's to hopefully more honest figures as we get a whole uh, nice batch of new Republican lawmakers uh, in, at least on the House side. And I think there's a couple new ones who won some open seats in the Senate as well. So we'll keep an eye out for them. And uh, who knows, some other Democrats might surprise us by being rational as well. Not holding my breath on that one, given where the party's headed, but uh, it's at least uh, it's at least possible. So Jim, the first three are in the books. Tomorrow's Christmas Eve. And as we all know, everything goes smoothly at every office building in America on Christmas Eve. <laughs> We're going to the big office party at the uh, at the skyscraper, right, Greg? <laughs> yes, 30th floor. Last one's in the Greg. building. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about our good friends over at Theragun, theragun.com slash martini. Please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. Also, we are extraordinarily grateful for your kind reviews and your five-star ratings. Get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch podcast. We will be here tomorrow on Christmas Eve with our next installment of our year-end martinis and then off for Christmas Day. So join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch.